Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. This is part one of a two-part episode with former Victoria Police Inspector Phil Shepherd. Phil Shepherd cut his teeth at Victoria Dock, where he learned about the painters and dockers, stolen goods, drugs and prostitution. The former Victoria Police Inspector did special duties in a bag of thief team, worked in inner city CIBs and the Homicide Squad before setting up the Early Leadership Centre under Chief Commissioner Christine Nixon. Phil was seconded to the AFP and the Australian Institute of Police Management before returning to VicPol to head up the media unit and set up his own consultancy. Hi Phil and welcome to The Crime Couch. Hi, Rochelle. Thanks. Great privilege to join you. It's an absolute pleasure. Let's go right back to the start. Why did you become a cop? Yeah, good question. I, uh, I remember being in my final year of school and had some sort of early ruminations about possibly being an architect. Hadn't really locked in on it, but uh, certainly hadn't considered policing prior to that final year of school. As I went through year 12, I wasn't much of a student, more so because I was interested in you know, doing jobs. I lived on a farm at the time, so shearing sheep and, you know, carting hay and raking wheat and the like uh, to sort of save money to buy my first car and I think a motorbike as well. And But I, I guess what that taught me was, gee, if you can't find time to study for your HSC, do you really want to spend the next four or five years studying to become an architect? And so I started to think about other options and, yeah, there's a few few possibilities in there, but, but policing really appealed to me. It was sort of a, I didn't know anyone who was who was in the, in the job, but just appealed to me in terms of the type of work and and so yeah application went in I think towards right at the end of my my year 12 of of school fortunate enough to uh, arrive at the academy the following year. So Phil one of your first posts was uh, as a young cop at Victoria Dock what did what did that interesting station teach you? Yeah, well, it was, a, it was a great experience, actually. Prior to that, the first couple of years when I joined the organisation, you sort of, you go to an initial training station, you're there for a few months, and then you sort of, I think they called an extended training scheme, but you got shipped around the organisation. You spend a month here and a month there, and whilst it was great exposure to see a different parts of the organisation, you never really got a chance to sink your teeth into anything and sort of, you know, truly blend in with the team. And so VicDoc was really the first chance for me to be able to do that course it was a very different place to what it is today the docklands are today and with the restaurants and the sort of the apartments and the you know nice sort of living it was very rough back then back in the day of course the painters and dockers were a really strong and forceful union and not only as a union but how they operated around the docks you know and so being confronted with you know masses of stolen goods and drugs and prostitutions when the the ships would come in and so on and so forth it was a it was a you know really eye-opening for me as a young constable but and and very challenging too to sort of embark on those investigations and to get a result but you know a, a really wonderful experience. What was involved when you worked in special duties in the bag of thief team? Now, I've never heard that phrase. Uh, it's a bit of a classic phrase. Tell me, why did that, why was that set up? 
<laughs> well, after I uh, left Victoria Dock, I spent a couple of years at Collingwood, which was amazing. Loved it. But I just, I, I needed another challenge and it wasn't uh, sort of uh, quite my time to go to the CIB, which is where I really wanted to end up. And so I went out to Heidelberg. I think I'd only been there for about six or eight weeks and uh, got invited to become part of this bag of thief team. It was the brainchild of uh, a chief super by the name of Bluey Bateman. In, in essence, it was about targeting the stolen goods. And so at that, po- at that time, stolen goods were prolific in the northern suburbs of Melbourne, not just from burglaries, but a whole range of other sources. And at that point, they really had, uh, whilst the, the occasional burglar was char- arrested and charged, uh, often there, there was not, not much in the way of recovery of the stolen goods. And so this task force was set up to sort of focus on that. And so that was our mission. It was a great place to work. We'd turn up at work back in the days where a justice of the peace had, had signed your search warrants. And so we'd all, we'd have three or four of those in the folder, turn up at the office at 5.30 in the morning every single day. And we'd leave and we'd go and we'd do our first search. If there was someone there, you know, and property found, great, arrest seize all the the, uh, the drugs and the property back to the office but if not then we'd simply just get in the car and drive to the next address and so typically after you did two or three warrants you were pretty certain of, of taking an offender or more back to the office and so that that just became the week so it was an incredible experience to very quickly amass experience in in you know house searches dealing with some of the criminal cohort out across those northern suburbs and hopefully make some kind of a dint on that that stolen goods problem. And a great way to build your crime stats. Yeah, very helpful for a pathway towards the uh, the CIB. Yeah, certainly didn't have any troubles bringing the figures together to help me help me get through that. Now, you spent some time in the Homicide Squad. You've got a couple of memorable cases, Phil, that really stuck with you. And one of them, which was about the body in the 44-gallon drum case in May 1992. Why has this case resonated with you so strongly? Oh, look, I think, Rochelle, lots of homicide cases stick with you for a long time. You know, the serious nature of the crime and the, the... the tragedy that it is and the deep impact that it has, a, a very permanent impact to the family is, to be honest, it's, it's, it's quite heartbreaking. So they always leave a mark on you. But this particular one was, was interesting. It was different. And it sort of came about the, the drug squad at the time were doing a massive operation on, a, I think, a Turkish uh, drug dealer operating out in the western suburbs. They, the, the drug squad had utilised the services of a, a very skilled covert operative, an undercover agent, who had infiltrated this uh, gang and and really made his way to build a friendship with the sort of the head of it and entrusted, you know, conversations. This drug dealer sort of turns to the undercover and says, oh, I think I've fixed up my little Chinese problem. That actually is the very astute undercover operative ascertained and worked out. Uh, that, that really was the start of a conversation about a... A murder that had taken place, this drug deal had strangled uh, a Vietnamese man, probably primarily because he was having an affair with the Vietnamese man's wife, and uh, he put his body into a barrel and wrapped it in concrete and dumped it into a river. But as we sort of put some bits and pieces together and some more from the undercover 
operative, we were able to work out we were pretty sure that the the drum had been dropped into uh, Pike Street Reservoir. You know, uh, on the way up to Ballarat, on the Western Highway, you go down across the bridge and up the other side. We're just in there near the bridge, and so we we spent a few days sort of you know joining some bits and pieces together but eventually we we headed up to Pike Street Reservoir early one morning we took the police divers and some crime scene personnel with us and yeah it was I think the divers only in the water for perhaps 20 or so minutes and sure enough they came across this blue 44 gallon drum and we put a strap on it and hauled it out of the water and back to the coroner's court or the institute of forensic medicine in south melbourne and sure enough inside this 44 gallon drum was the body of this vietnamese man so profound profoundly different and certainly the value that people place on human life over and over is, is just remarkable Extraordinary work from that undercover agent as well, who, by the way, is, he, is that person still in the job? I've got to say one of the most remarkable undercover agents, in my, in my view, that Victoria Police has ever seen, uh, and this is only one piece of work that this individual offered. Over, he, he was responsible through his work for solving so many crimes outside of drug activity. He was very skilled at what he did, very streetwise, and certainly had a great ability to build trust of you know some pretty hardened crooks. But yeah, I understand he's still in the job. He will be just doing what he always does, doing his job and, and helping other people. Was that case successfully run and won, like conviction guaranteed and secured? Yeah, we did. We did get a conviction. I think it was for memory. It was a long trial. I got a feeling that, and it was actually eventually that they got a retrial too. Even though we, you know, he was convicted and sentenced, but I think in the end, sentenced to about twenty-seven years. Another case that stuck with you, Phil, when you're at the Homicide Squad is the murder of a farmer over the theft of star pickets in August 1995. Now, why is this one stuck with you? Look, I think I think for a couple of reasons. One is because the victim or the deceased, 42-year-old man, a farmer, self-employed electrician, an absolutely lovable bloke, by all accounts, married four young kids, lived on 160 acres, sort of on the the brink or the the edge of Lake Hume, and had really the idyllic lifestyle. Church-going guy, just an amazing fellow by all accounts, and certainly that the family seemed to reflect that. And he he'd set up some star pickets at the front of his farming property. A lot of farmers do it. They put the star pickets out closer to the road and just provide some extra grazing land for the cattle and sometimes it helps to reduce the fire hazard as well. And bizarrely, someone had stolen on several occasions these star pickets. They literally come along with a pair of cutters, snipped the wire and removed the star pickets and driven away. And the star pickets are worth like $3.50. So it was a bizarre crime and, and he had fallen into... Fallen's probably not the right word, but he'd be, he'd be so angry that it happened two or three times. He started doing a little drive around his property at night time, which is when all the thefts seemed to occur. And sure enough, on one occasion, this particular night, he's come across, uh, it would appear, the person stealing his fence posts. There's been an old occasion and uh, the deceased was shot point blank through the chest and uh, left to die. What an extraordinary case to be killed over some star pickets and and what how did this unravel like what what occurred then did you find out the motivation and why this man was killed yeah well look it was a initially it seemed like a challenging job and 
I guess if you think about $3.50 star pickets, most farmers have got 50 or 60 of them sitting in their shed, and certainly farmers don't steal from other farmers is, is typically the way that it works. And so our sort of thoughts went to, well, maybe this is... One of the theories we had at the time was this is maybe, you know, there's a couple of outlaw motorcycle clubs in Albury at the time. Maybe they're setting up a drug crop. Maybe they want to, you know, even get something as cheap as star pickets and not have the, the spending, you know, traced. If you're going to set up a fence around the crop or whatever, that was sort of about the best that we could come up with. We did have a couple of key pieces of, or helpful pieces of evidence from the scene. One was the projectile that was lodged in the deceased's heart uh, was obviously removed at the post-mortem and our ballistics team was able to tell us that that was fired from a 22 caliber rifle. Of course, they're everywhere, you know, in country Victoria, but nonetheless, it was a start. But probably more significantly, our crime scene guys did an amazing job. We're fortunate it was in August, so it was winter, lots of rain, the countryside was damp and there were some tyre tracks on the ground. There was not just one, but two tyre tracks and... A range of things were able to be, reach the conclusion that uh, it was the rear tyres and so because we had both tyres, we were able to ascertain the axle which would then of course gives you possible vehicles. There are only two types of vehicles which would use these tyres and would have this particular axle width and so it sort of really narrowed down our, our focus started to look for of course people who own firearms and people who own one of these two types of vehicles a little complex because you're dealing with Victoria and Albury, both different sides of the border and different ways of recording things and all that. But that was where the investigation started. So did you manage also to secure a conviction here? Did you manage to get the person and, and what occurred? Yeah, well, look, uh, eventually we got there. It was an interesting story, though. A couple of weeks in, uh, we really hadn't uh, made much in the way of progress, probably more eliminated a lot of people than anything else. And um, I remember going back out to the scene or more so to the, the family home, which this happened right outside the front of the property and, and spending some time with his wife, just trying to get dig more into the background. And I asked her if I could have another look at his briefcase on the, on the front seat of his car. So he's uh, effectively propped this offender on the night. His car's found, you know, door open, engine running, headlights on, and on the front seat was a briefcase. And in that briefcase was his mobile phone, some cash, a checkbook, uh, a couple of other sort of valuable or potentially valuable things that sort of made us realise, well, robbery's not really a motive here. And because it was more about the fence posts, we hadn't spent a lot of time if any, around that briefcase. And so I went back to have another look through the briefcase and, uh, you know, and it was his diary and his receipt book and so on and so forth. I went through all of these things and there was nothing, whilst there was lots of information there, nothing remarkable sort of jumped out at me. But I remember, I think it was the very last thing I looked at was a tiny little spiral-bound notebook, one that you might put in your shirt pocket or your jacket pocket. And I went right through the notebook again. It was just his wife later told me that his memory was not great and so if someone said to him hey I need you to come to this job tomorrow he'd ask the address and immediately write it down or I'm going to get five lengths of cable for that other job everything he wrote down so there was evidence of that in the notebook and I couldn't see anything at all that was sort of triggering and so I threw it back into the uh, the briefcase and as I did I noticed that it it had a a little vinyl cover on I think from Lawrence and Hanson like an electrical wholesaler and just designed to protect the notebook, I suppose, as well as a bit of advertising. And on the outside of that, it had what looked like a registration number. 
and it didn't look like it was that old, wasn't faded or anything. So I sort of grabbed it and I thought, I wonder if that's something. So I grabbed the notebook and I went back to the office. Obviously, no data terminals in cars or anything in those days. So back to uh, the CIB office at Wodonga, and I put this number into the computer, and it was a tractor. And so I thought, oh, well, clearly it's not the car that we're looking for. And I went and made a cup of coffee, and I came back to the computer, uh, to the notebook about two minutes later, and I thought, initially I thought I think it was EHX 566, the tractor. And I thought, I wonder if that's a Y. So I put it in, EHY 566, no, Ford Station Wagon from Geelong. I thought, right, that's it, done. You know, it's, it's clearly nothing to do with it. We actually went off and made some, um, did a couple of other inquiries, and probably two hours later, came back to the office maybe around lunchtime, and I, something drew me back to this notebook, and I thought, I look at it again, I thought, I wonder if that's a V, EHV, five double six. Put it in the computer, and sure enough, Nissan twin cab, like a, a you know a dual cab Ute, and significantly registered to a granular address about 30 k's from where the murder had happened. And of course, that was really the start of finding the the way through it. Inquiries later revealed that we went to this guy's house, and you know the, he didn't have the firearm. And no, no, not me. An old you know grandfather, I think 61 years of age, and. They certainly didn't have those tyres on his car and so on, but we were later able to find that at some stage he did have those tyres on. In fact, he'd bought them brand new about a month earlier, and now they're not on the car, and so what we then found out, he'd purchased some second-hand tyres and he'd actually swapped them over in his own garage and cut holes in the side of the tyres and threw them in the Murray River. But um, that was the end of it. He, he claimed it was an accident. In, in our view, that couldn't have been the case. But uh, that's the story that you put up with, and so it went to court that way. And were you happy with the final sentence and, and the conviction? Uh, I've got to say I wasn't. As I said a minute ago, uh, he was claiming effectively self-defence. It was an accident. This guy, you know, the deceased supposedly came at him and he fired him, and I just, you know, the, the ballistic evidence alone was able to refute that. Did you believe him? No. No, I, I, well, you've got to go with the evidence that's in front of you and yeah, putting all of the pieces together uh, certainly didn't. But um, he claimed it was an accident. We claimed it was intentional. We felt like we had proven that through the evidence that we gathered and was presented to the court and uh, the jury came back and, and found him guilty of manslaughter. And so he was sentenced, I think, to about seven years. And I've never done it before and I've never done it since, but I remember because it was, the, the trial was in Wangaratta and uh, when the jury's impaneled, as investigators, we pay just as much attention to who's impaneled as does the, the crook and his legal team. And, and so you sort of hear some of the names and some of the occupations. And one of them, a girl who sat in the front row all the time, I had remembered that her name was Sandra and she was a librarian. And I remember laughing to myself, thinking about what a contrast coming from a library to sitting in a courtroom and hearing about all of this. And after the verdict was given, the court case is finished. I think it was the following day. I couldn't sleep at night time. As I said, I've never done it since. But the following morning, I thought, you know what, there can't be that many libraries in town, in Wangaratta. And so I went and I found the local library. I think the first library I went to, there was no Sandra working there. I went to another library. I think it might have been at the at TAFE. And sure enough, there was a Sandra there. I asked if I could speak to her. She came to the counter. You know, it was just that instant, random, bizarre recognition when she came and she said, oh, hi, I wondered what you wanted to chat about. And I said, well, look, I'm just wondering if there's a place where we can sort of talk for a few minutes. And so she took me in the staff room. We had a cup of tea and sort of we chatted for a few minutes. But I finally said to her, she said, look, how can I help you? And I said, I'm just really curious about how 
you know, I said, you don't have to tell me if you don't want to, but I said, I'm just so curious about how the jury landed on that verdict of manslaughter because in my mind it was either nothing or being, being convicted of murder. And she said to me, she said, do you remember that we came back into the court a couple of times when we'd retired to consider the verdict? We came back and we asked the judge for some help, you know, for some advice or to clarify something. And I said, yeah, I do. And she said, well, we came back in twice and we just got more confused when the judge spoke to us. And so she went back out and she said, well, we can't sit here forever. We can't let him off. And so they had this discussion in the jury room and the whole jury agreed, look, we can't let him off. He's clearly done, he's clearly killed this bloke, but how, do we really want to sentence him for, for murder? Who agrees we all go in the middle? And so they all unanimously, all 12 of them agreed, we'll go with the manslaughter. Um, as I said, uh, not something that I have done on any other occasion, but it just reminds us of, you know, a lot of people say the jury system's well, and I guess by and large it probably does serve the community of Victoria pretty well. But on this occasion, certainly I think some other occasions that I'm aware of, it's a really hard task for jurors to get some of that technical legal information right, and, and I sometimes wonder whether it lets us down and, and gives us results that we otherwise might not get. Even the details of the forensic evidence, I think, is sometimes extremely hard to comprehend. And, you know, as I cited to you before, in Victoria, jurors aren't, former jurors aren't allowed to give their perspectives. So you got an extraordinary insight. And, you know, it's also something that really sticks with you, I'd imagine, as a homicide squad detective. Those cases that you put your heart and soul into, you know, you know I know you've always just got to deliver the brief at the end of the day. And, and let's see what occurs. But it would stick with you and obviously did, this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, it, it, it did. And it's just one of those things that eats away at you. You know, as a homicide, probably any investigator in the in Victoria Police wants to do their best to get the, the result for the victim. But I think, you know, in a homicide context, there's no greater crime, there's no greater price that an individual and certainly the family pays. And so you just always want to see it never brings the individual back. They live with the pain of that forever. I've seen that again and again and again. But you just want to do whatever you can to sustain the best outcome to help some aspect of their closure. And I I just didn't feel like that was the case uh, in this one. Well, Phil, thank you very much. It's been a delight sitting with you today on the Crime Couch. Thanks, Rochelle. Privileged to be with you. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time 